Plain and simple, the team that we root for today wouldn't be here were it not for Howard Baldwin. The team's history reflects that of the man we honor today. The Whalers and Baldwin, Baldwin and the Whalers. He was always there. The roof fell in on our building, a disaster. Howard had us traveling up Route 91 to Springfield just hours later for a Whaler game. Howard Baldwin loved the World Hockey Association. He became its president. But he wanted more for his team. He wanted more for his adopted city. He wanted the NHL. It was a tough sell. He negotiated for years, failing twice before finally becoming a member. Uh, I think that a hell of a lot was accomplished because a lot of the emotional differences, a lot of the, uh, the dislikes, or however you want to put it, was broken down over the past few days. I think that they have come away with a lot of respect for us. And I must say, I quite frankly have come away with a, a lot more respect for them. That was in June of 1978. By March of 1979, the Whalers and three other teams from the World Hockey Association were big time. On behalf of the Board of Governors of the National Hockey League, I'm very pleased to be able to report to you today that the Board has approved the National Hockey League's fifth plan of expansion. Tell us your innermost thoughts. <laughs> well, I am very happy, you know, because we've worked long and hard on it. The partnership has. And I'm really happy for my partners and the people in Hartford, for people like yourself. I think there's no question that it takes our sport and our franchise and uh, puts it right where it belongs. And uh, getting it right back up there is number one. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, hello, hello. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, it's the Curious Little Podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We do it every week for you, and uh, we thank you for coming on by. Welcome to the proceedings. Lots of uh, fun and frivolity ahead for you this week as our guest. Uh, in that clip that you just heard, uh, the voice of uh, our returning guest, his name is Howard Baldwin, and uh, you hockey fans, especially you New England slash Hartford Whalers uh, memorialists, will absolutely know that name. And uh, if you haven't listened to our first episode uh, with Mr. Baldwin, uh, Jesus, almost two years ago now, our episode number 100, by all means, give a listen to that because we get into the Whalers story, both WHA and segue into uh, the NHL. Uh, but we've been dying to have Howard back uh, to go even further uh, in his uh, life and career, which is uh, going very strong still. Thank you very much. Uh, in the realm of uh, film production, you may uh, remember, for example, the uh, Tyler Hackford uh, directed and uh, Howard Baldwin and family produced uh, biopic Ray from 2004, Academy Award winning Ray. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Jamie Foxx with his uh, outstanding performance uh, in that film. That's his new career, Howard's. But uh, we uh, drag him back, uh, kicking and screaming into, let's call it part two or chapter three or whatever of uh, the story of his career uh, outside and beyond or after uh, the Whalers. And it's it's fascinating uh, and it's nonstop. And we get into all that stuff. Yeah, we touch on the uh, the Whaler story and the WHA. Of course, that's uh, obviously very important. That's where Howard got his start in earnest. And obviously that uh, coincides with lots of other explorations we've done, both of the WHA, various teams, um, 
our late great departed friend Dennis Murphy, the uh, chief uh, instigator of said league and others, obviously, that came afterwards or before as well, the uh, the uh, ABA, et cetera. Uh, but we get into lots of fun stuff uh, that uh, sort of emanated out of, I guess, or became sort of the second or third or fourth acts of Howard Baldwin's uh, just amazing career. You, of course, remember that um, Howard came up with a book, uh, an autobiographical account of lots of these things called Slim and None. And you'll find a convenient link to that uh, to that book, of course, uh, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just find this episode number, what is it, 259 now? My goodness. Uh, and you'll find a convenient link to that as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and he's also got a podcast out, Slim and None, which is a beautiful, uh, uh, I guess, uh, parallel or, or uh, uh, addition, if you will, to the story. Uh, and that's found uh, wherever good podcasts are found uh, uh, as well. Uh, but we get into some of the other uh, crazy lives, if you will, of Howard. For example, the uh, the clip that you sort of uh, uh, heard there from that was Dave Smith from uh, Hartford's TV station WFSB uh, back in 1990 when Howard was being inducted into the Hartford Whalers Hall of Fame. And uh, in the midst of that, you heard not only uh, Dave Smith's voice uh, and Howard's voice, but also the voice of one somewhat taciturn and and, and uh, uh, very measured. Uh, I, I think it's the best way I could describe it. John Ziegler of the NHL. And uh, I, I know nothing about uh, Mr. Ziegler as a person and, and his, uh, but his, uh, um, his facade, I guess, was very uh, sort of stone faced and uh, perhaps indicative of the very uh, tense and, and at times, it seems, acrimonious conversations uh, between this uh, uh, almost decade long thorn in the side, this WHA thing, uh, against that of the NHL. And Howard Baldwin uh, is the, uh, I don't know if it's the unsung hero, but uh, I think for some people it's, it's sort of glossed over as essentially the person that truly made, you want to call it a merger, the NHL would probably like to call it an expansion, whatever those four teams that came over from the WHA, and I'm sorry for the Houston Arrows and the Cincinnati Stingers for not making that jump, and we talk about that uh, with Howard in our conversation, Um uh, that's, uh, you know, June, 1978 was sort of when it was, uh, kind of coming together. And, and in March of 79, the quote unquote expansion from the NHL's terms. And again, they were the surviving entity, if you will. So I guess they could call it what they wanted. Uh, but you know, I think to most hockey aficionados, uh, it was a merger and it was a, uh, arguably a successful conclusion to, uh, a wild and woolly almost, uh, 10 years or so of challenging the man. And that man, literally and figuratively, was John Ziegler and the NHL. And, and it needed challenging. And we've talked about a lot of sort of expansion uh, efforts or lack thereof until 1967 or 68 when the NHL kind of woke up and realized that, you know, there could be more to this hockey thing on the professional level in this country beyond just six friggin' teams. Um, and that WHA story, is, it's its uh, fascinating. So we talk about that uh, in this week's episode with Howard. Uh, we talk about... Uh, his NHL career with the Pittsburgh Penguins, there's the Minnesota North Stars in the mix, the founding of the San Jose Sharks, and the interconnection between all of those three teams, uh, which is convoluted and confusing, but uh, we try to get some clarity there. Uh, we talk about <laughs> the similarly bizarre and intriguing story uh, also of the Red Army team uh, out of the then Soviet Union. Um, 
essentially red, the Red Army team is is uh, the nickname. Uh, it's also referred to, I guess, historically as the Central Red Army team. I think the official name is HC. I think that stands for Hockey Club CSKA Moscow, um, which was and is still the Russian Professional Hockey Club. Uh, I believe it's part of the Continental Hockey League now, the the Russian uh, league, the KHL. Uh, but back in the day, I think this was sometime in the '90s uh, when Howard and uh, friends were part of the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins ownership. Um, there was a we'll get into it, but it's an investment and or co-marketing relationship or or, or something in between those two or or, or both of. Uh, where uh, there was a relationship, if you will, between the Penguins and or by extension, the NHL and this Red Army team. And uh, it it almost became sort of a spectacle. Uh, I wouldn't call it quite Harlem Globetrotters-esque, but there were certainly elements of that, barnstorming and and, and bringing pizzazz to the team, although this was a team very much ensconced in the professional and uh, even before that amateur uh, hockey scene in Russia, but I don't slash Soviet Union at the time. Uh, the movie uh, that you should see as preparation for this is called Red Penguins, and Howard and uh, various other people are, are uh, prime figures in that film. Howard had nothing to do with the production of it, but obviously he's a main character, and and I mean that in the the nicest terms, hardly pejoratively. Uh, Red Penguins. It came out in 2020. We'll have a link to that too. But the story of that uh, is is uh, uh, equally intriguing. But as is uh, some of the other stuff of Howard's career, we get into some of his minor league hockey exploits, uh, including uh, going back to Hartford and uh, bringing back the Whaler uh, name by uh, renaming the Rangers uh, AHL club at the time, the Hartford Wolfpack, to the Connecticut Whale. Uh, the uh, the ongoing um, uh, legacy of that name continuing in the um, uh, in the uh, women's league now known as the as uh, the pre- uh, premier hockey league. What, what is it called now? I'm sorry, obviously, it was used to be called the uh, National Women's Hockey League. What do we call it now? I think it's now uh, known as oh my goodness, Premier Hockey Federation. I need to get that straight. The Premier Hockey Federation. Uh, and that name and, and logo and, and all that still lives on. Um, we get into the uh, the uh, ongoing uh, usage of the Hartford Whalers logo and 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 team name and and all that kind of stuff um, uh, by the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. And yes, wait for it. We get into Howard's dalliance. I think it's best called that with. The fledgling World Football League back in 1974 it didn't sort of come to consummation, but Howard was involved very much behind the scenes. Uh, but a, a, some some interesting World Football League uh, insights there too. All of that and more coming up with a fun and uh, frankly overdue uh, return conversation with our pal Howard Baldwin coming up in a few moments' time. Quick promotional note uh, before thus thus that you know. Uh, let's go to our friends at RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks they are. It's RoyalRetros.com, and the uh, best way to explore them this week uh, is to simply just click on their uh, collections subheading and then further click to the WHA collection. And I, I don't really need to tell you much more than you're just going to get everything you want and ever needed uh, and hoped for 
in terms of memories in clothing form from the old World Hockey Association. Yeah, shirts with the logos and different colors and, and schema. That's terrific. But also handcrafted 503 Sports branded and customizable jerseys. Affordably priced, well-made. And, um, you know, if you're looking for a Nordiques jersey, for example, you want it in that baby blue with the um, fleur de lis uh, all over the place. Great. Would you like it in the red, white, and blue uh, sort of version? Either way, you can get it. And I think there's even a third version as well. Get your name on the back of it if you like. And that's kind of what you're going to get at, at royalretros.com. Um, you know, you want that Chicago Cougars jersey in either green sort of dominated or yellow dominated? You can get it. Of course, there's the Whaler stuff, but you can get the Cleveland Crusaders jersey in either white uh, dominant form or in that their gorgeous deep royal purple uh, with that sort of smart looking Crusaders logo. Um, the Cincinnati Stingers. I mean, you name the team, the Birmingham Bulls, the Toronto Toros, the the Vancouver Blazers or the Philadelphia uh, version thereof beforehand, the Roadrunners of Phoenix. I mean, they're all there. Yeah, even the Calgary Cowboys are in there. Uh, and again, you'll find them all. The great, not only shirts, but again, these smart looking jerseys. You'll be the king of the block uh, with your hockey friends with uh, these great throwback jerseys from royalretros.com. And don't forget, promo code for you there on the website for 10% off all of your purchases. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS. That's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases at royalretros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. I know it. And um, we thank Dustin and his friends uh, out in Portland for their sponsorship of the show. All right, let's get to it. Howard Baldwin returns. Here's our fun and no holds barred conversation. He's a delight to talk to. Uh, I think we may have him back again. That's how good this conversation is. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and uh, as much as I did uh, making it. And uh, here it is, please, as always, enjoy. So it's been, my goodness, uh, a couple of years since we last talked. I'm sure you remember it intently and uh, with uh, great specificity. Uh, um, yep. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay. Um, but since uh, we've last talked, uh, and I uh, uh, obviously uh, saw uh, your quotes in that great uh, uh, article in ESPN.com, we were talking to Ryan actually this weekend uh, about it. Um, uh, we, uh, it's been, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, Dennis Murphy has passed since we last talked. And I thought maybe we just jump in with some memories there, um, given that he was probably the guy who hooked Hooked you in uh, uh, big time into the, the WHA and all the other things that uh, came from that. Yeah, I mean, Dennis was a wonderful guy and a great salesman, a gregarious, um, just a gregarious Irish fellow with great humor and, and uh, spirit. And he led a great life and made huge contributions to sport and obviously will be missed. But he led a full, wonderful life and was a wonderful man. Well, remind us uh, from uh, your whalers uh, exploits and stuff. How did you come to know him? And was he the guy, the chief instigator for getting you involved in the WHA in the first place? Uh, yeah, Tim, he was, because when we called out here to Southern California, um, he was the guy that answered the phone. And uh, he was a guy in the article that we saw. <clears throat> so he was our first line of communication. And really, until the first meeting, we spoke almost 100% to him, occasionally to the lawyer, Don Reagan, 
and occasionally to uh, Gary Davidson, but mostly Dennis, mostly Dennis. And and he was, if from my recollection of our conversations with him, um, his his tone seemed to be kind of like hustle first, fill in the details later. Is, is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, he would he would create a beautiful package and you never quite knew what was in it. Um, You you know, he was constantly selling, constantly adjusting. I don't think I ever saw him discouraged or deterred. And you could get bad news and there was plenty of up and down news in the WHA. But he would always rebound and, and say, well, okay, that's the dark side, but here's the bright side. And we're losing this owner, but we're getting a new owner. And uh, we lost this player, but look who we're going to get, you know? So so he was a master of having a constant positive spirit, like few I've ever seen, because it's a business where you can get, you can get pretty, you know, um, discouraged at times. There are a lot of disappointments. And I don't know that I ever remember seeing Dennis disappointed or discouraged, maybe disappointed, not discouraged. Well, especially when you're challenging forces bigger and more entrenched and and more historical than you. And frankly, when there's probably no rule book per se in in doing that. Well, you're right about the rule book. I mean, we had nothing to compare it to. What we were doing was the first, certainly for me and my partners, um, because we were mighty young, and so there was nothing we could compare it to. But look, when you start a new league um, in a in a sport like the NHL, there's no way to compare it to anything. You're flying by the seat of your pants from everything you do, including putting the team together. I mean, we've been doing this podcast ourselves, and we talk about we talk with some of the players, and we talk with Ronnie Ryan, who helped put the team together, and he said, we had no idea. Would our team be good? Would it be able to compete? You know, we think we're drafting good players, and we think we're going to be able to compete, but we had nothing to gauge it by. Um, And I'd never thought of it that way, but he's right. Was right and is right. So why did you sign up and, and what was his effect and others effect on you in, in convincing you to do so? Uh, you were relatively young and early in your quote unquote career. But I, if I remember correctly, that quote unquote career wasn't even fully formed at that point in your head. Right. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. It was not formed. Uh, obviously, I was 28. I had about four or five years of working experience with, with the Flyers and with their minor league team. So. So, you know, we were. We were in our uncharted territory pretty much no matter, no matter what I did. Um, so we were, we were in from the get-go. We thought it was a great challenge. We, we smelled an opportunity. We smelled the challenge, and we just went for it. Did you worry about repercussions, given your experience in the NHL and, and knowing, frankly, how much of a, a vice-like grip they really had on the sport? I mean, to the point where, as you probably remember, right, there were only – six teams in that league until the late sixties. I mean, they probably held out longest, I guess, in terms of, you know, expansion and seeing other markets and growing the sport. Yeah. I never personally worried about, I guess the word is retribution. um, Because for me, there wasn't a huge downside. I didn't have a long career 
in the NHL and I had a long life, God willing, in front of me. But for the players, I just admired the players that made that leap of faith. I admired them so much. Um, sure, some of them, you know, it was a step, not sideways, but a, a, always a step up. But but some of the players, you know, a lot of the players we signed, another team signed, really had their future in front of them in the NHL. And a lot of those NHL owners were mean people, vindictive people. And you know they weren't going to let you back if the league folded. So there was a hell of a lot at stake, believe me. So what was it and, and maybe how much of it was you needed to be you needing to be coaxed to do so or how much of it was sort of latent inside you and it just needed to be kind of tapped and gently cracked open, so to speak, uh, by, say, somebody so gregarious and and optimistic like uh, like a Dennis Murphy or even a Gary Davidson? Um, yeah. what, you know, how much entrepreneurialism would you say that you had in you? Um, you know, to, to kind of just jump in and, and do this, right? Because some, you know, so, some people say, you know, like when they're starting their career, they become a stand-up comedian or whatever it might be, is um, they're almost thankful that they don't know what they don't know, right? It gives them fearlessness. Um, was that kind of where you were coming from in this? Or, or did you have to be sort of convinced given your early years in the NHL and all its formality? A very good question, Tim. I was never, there was no fear because we didn't know enough to have fear. Um, and I never had to be coaxed because we wanted this from the time we had our first conversation with Dennis. Um, my partner, Johnny Coburn, and I just said, this is our opportunity to do our thing. And if anything, we were, we were nervous. Maybe they wouldn't take us in because they were pretty good at the hustle and made it sound like they had a long line of applicants when, in fact, they were digging, they were digging for applicants. So we kind of hustled each other, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it worked out great. But we wanted in from day one. We were focused on making it work. Why do you think they went so hard on hockey? Uh, I, you know, the ABA certainly had been, you know, Dennis's, uh, you know, a shot across the bow, so to speak. And, you know, it was, you know, it had made some initial ways, but clearly that wasn't sort of, you know, the epitome of long-term and, and rooted success there. Uh, did you have any, I don't know, uh, inkling about sort of the ABA and, and why maybe uh, hockey was next? I mean, did you, did you think that that was going to be a blueprint maybe for success or, or did the ABA figure into any of your calculations? No, but but we knew they had started and the ABA was going on. Remember when they started the WHA, the ABA was in full stride. Now what happens when you start a new league and if you read the books and all, but I'm, it, what happens is entrepreneurs like Gary and Dennis started. But the minute the league is formed, that day that the 12 people sit around the room and hand over their checks, and the league entrepreneurs accept them, then the power is in the hands of those 12 franchise members. And then there's accountability. And the league is no longer theirs, quote unquote. It's the 12 members that sit around that room. So once you get 12 businessmen 
that have their own set of goals and their own agendas and their own financial needs, you're going to have a tremendous amount of infighting and disagreements. And I've said even to the, my last year in the NHL, a league is a partner designed to compete against itself. You sit in a room and you have the spirit of cooperation. Oh, we're going to do this salary cap. And I mean, you walk out of that room and you're only out for one thing and that's your team. And if anybody says different, they're full of it. <laughs> and so what can often happen is the league office bears the brunt of some, some, you know, blame that probably should fall more on the shoulders of the owners. So for Gary and Dennis, Gary wasn't in the ABA long at all. Dennis was in a little bit longer, um, but then the, the, the league got taken over by other powers to be. And so they then formed the WHA. And of course they learned. So they put more teeth into their, their operating power, if you get what I mean. And um, so they lasted, Dennis lasted quite a bit longer. Gary left fairly quickly, not because he had to leave, but because he wanted to leave to do the World Football League. All right, we'll, we'll get to that one in a second. But I could one, so I guess when it came to the WHA, right? So I, maybe I'll just pull on that thread for a second. Was there any discussion, thought, whatever, of the owners, or maybe even in your uh, thinking as you were thinking about getting the coin purse together and seeing how much money you could get to get your own franchise about anything related to or or or, or hinting at some kind of centralized ownership by sort of the, what we call today sort of the uh, uh, the single uh, the single entity sort of theory. Single entity ownership? No, absolutely yeah. not. It was totally alien at the time, totally, and that really didn't happen until. Gosh, um, game plan, my dear, dear friend, Bob Caparell and Randy Vitaha. Had but, a there, but there was some there was some communal aspects, though, right? I mean, the idea of, of going after some of these top name NHL players with these big, literally and figuratively sure. checks uh, th- where it was sort of a shared wealth or shared uh, sacrifice kind of thing, right? It was only one Bobby Hall. OK, only one. And you're 100% right, though. Um, everybody, including myself, felt this was a this would be very valuable to get a guy like Hull. And so everybody was meant to chip in. Only about four teams did. We were one that did chip in. Um, but it, that signing pretty much put the icing on the cake of the league. Wait, so people were reneging already? I mean, didn't that give you some pause? Oh, oh sure. Oh, my God. Um, from the we got in the league in November of 1971. April of 1972, there were already four different, four franchise moves, four cities from one to another, and I think four or five ownership changes. I would always say right up until the last day, right the day we officially did the merger, that every league meeting was like Russian roulette, and you spin the pistol and you see who's in and who's out. <laughs> and you started to worry when? For the first time, you know, um, I mean, I know you're fearless in, in the story and you and you, you know, but as uh, you get older and, and you have partners and you have a responsibility to them. I always felt that we'd hold the league together, so I never really worried that the league would crater and right at the end when we did the merger, 
if we didn't consummate the merger in 79, I don't know that we could have gotten another year because we were then down to six teams, you know? And six teams playing 78 games, that's a lot, isn't it? Well, let's let's slide into that because that's that's kind of where we left off in our last conversation. I, you know, your, I, you know, I don't depending on on whose history you read and 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 what sort of narratives you sort of believe. I mean, I, I guess my terminology would be you're, you're almost you were almost like if not actually the invisible hand behind that merger, quote unquote. Would, would you agree? I mean, you're kind of like a an outsized figure. That it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, in certain circles is crucial to that merger and in others, you were kind of, you know, sort of the quiet uh, guiding force behind it. Well, and I appreciate that, Tim. I mean, I was there from day one and I had was blessed to have a very strong ownership group. Our market was small, but the ownership group is probably the most powerful in either league with the Connecticut corporations and United Technologies and a few banks. I mean, it was, you put all those assets together, it was probably about $100 billion. And so we, we had that power. And I had been in from day one. And I knew instinctively that we were not going to make it long term unless we did some kind of a, of a uh, merger. And, and, and I had allies. I mean, Billy DeWitt was a huge ally. He owns the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, he was very strong with it. Michael Body in Winnipeg, Pockington and Edmonton. But strong franchises knew that if they wanted to stay in business, we had to do a merger. And at the time, from 70, I guess it was 77, 76 on, I was president of the WHA, as well as the managing general partner of the Whalers. So I kind of had the dual job, and it wasn't I'm not trying to say it was terribly complicated because really my function was to get the merger done, not day to day run the league. Um, so you're, you're, yeah, almost was, the, you're almost the most equal of equals, so to speak, right? Uh, who, who better probably to kind of lead somebody who's in our shoes, but also can collectively look at our, our, our total lot going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and had relationship with, you know, I mean, I had a great relationship with Ed Snyder from the Flyers and, and had spent time, even though we were in two leagues, getting to know some of the other guys. And so that's really what pulls people together is them realizing, hey, <clears throat> they're not bad people. We're not bad people. Um, the time for the nonsense has got to end. And the element that is opposing it, and there was an element, we know who they were, Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal for a good stretch, Boston, um, uh, you know, you, you had to overcome them and really work hard at doing that. Chicago, and, and we did it. When, when would you say you were, shall we say, full tilt on focusing on the merger, right? The, the rumors had started quite early on in the WHA's history, Um but obviously didn't get consummated until 79. It just seems, if memory serves, frankly, from when I was growing up, uh, it almost seemed uh, uh, for it seemed forever it was lingering in the air that this was somehow going to happen, whether it was a merger or an absorption or something. Yeah, uh, It seems it was, like almost as early as like, what, 76, 75 even maybe, right? Nah, it, it was always sort of in the air, but not real. 
It got real in 78 when they, when they made the change to John Ziegler and, and um, the NHL. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And, and that's when it got real. And we actually, then people don't remember June of 78, we were actually voted in, in a six team division with Houston and Cincinnati. And, and then, and then the Ballards and the Bostons and a couple other franchise rallied the negatives and we voted out in August. <laughs> so, but we, we had that experience and, and John, one of the things John Ziegler said to me right away was, look, and, and then Bill Wirtz came over to our side of the line and trying to help make it happen. He said, one thing to do because we're all scared to death of litigation and I trust uh, get a higher, higher the firm Proskauer gets, you know, the law firm, a huge law firm in New sure. York City. And, and we did, you know who our lawyer was? David Stern. <laughs> he was our first lawyer to represent us. Um, That's and, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And David lasted three or four months and then went right over to the NBA to become legal counsel under Larry O'Brien. But they then put on our case a fellow named Michael Cardoza, who was a marvelous guy. And so it went from there. Um, and, and we had another crack at it the following June, came closer. Then the fall came wicked close. And then within a couple of months, we got it done. Who, who would you say was more the driving force? The, the, shall we say, increasingly desperate, perhaps, WHA ownership group or the NHL because of, of those potential legal issues and or maybe a desire to continue to fuel the catch-up, if you will, of their uh, slow but, uh, you know, evolving expansion thing that finally started to happen in the late 60s? Well, there are a couple of things, way to look at this, okay? The driving force was, was both sides, really, because if we went out of business, you could argue legally they were way out there because you could say they put us out of business. Um, so the best of all worlds, if you have a terminal disease and somebody comes along and says, I'm going to cure that disease and I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars, you, you get what I mean? And that's what happened between WHA. The, the NHL realized, my God, we can get rid of this WHA, which is causing us great pain. And we'll get them to pay us whatever the price was, $4 million a team, right? And so it was a win-win for them. And, and then, of course, took them completely off the hook in the event that we ended up folding and then accused them of putting us out of business. You see what I mean, Tim? You see? Yeah, so, sure. Um, yeah. Well, here's the other uh, that's... That's very so. Let me then get into the actual teams. I mean, you mentioned Houston and Cincinnati falling by the wayside, but but Houston, all right? So, I'm guessing you said around 78, 77 ish. You know, there it was getting more real and 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 putting right. more flesh around it, right? So, yeah. can, can you give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of the um, I want to call it haggling, but the decision making around which markets were gonna go and ultimately did go right because Houston obviously didn't even make it to the final year of the WHA 
but clearly a market of interest, right? Cincinnati and Birmingham, which were there at the end of the uh, at the of the end of the last season, uh, ultimately didn't make it either. And I'm just curious as to maybe some rationale that you might remember uh, for 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 the ultimate decisions that were made. Okay, um, they actually initially were okay with Cincy and Houston, and then they because remember we got voted in. <laughs> June and then got voted out. Um, Houston, yeah, it seem, was, I'm sorry, it would seem those markets would be very attractive, even, even today, frankly, certainly Houston today, right? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but truthfully, I don't think, they, deep down, they didn't want any of this. You know, they didn't really want Hartford, but they knew the one team that would, was, you know, powerful financially and had you know, we had done a pretty good job with Hartford. And your three Canadian markets were outstanding markets. And, and even though there isn't a team in Quebec, there should be, it was just a great market. And, and Winnipeg has proven itself, Edmonton's proven itself. So, so, so they really took three Canadian teams and only one American team, which was Hartford. Um, so, so, you know, and then with Cincy, they just didn't want Cincy. They just didn't like the market. It was their rationale. I really, to this day, don't get it. I kind of do get Birmingham. You know, they weren't ready for going deep into the South like that, even though I, I, I like Birmingham as a market. Johnny was a, Johnny Bassett, fabulous owner. Um, Legend, legendary for sure. For Oh my God. They don't, they don't come any better anywhere in any league and any sport than John. So, so, and, and both Johnny and, and Billy, when they realized they weren't going to get in, they hung in there with us because they realized if they're ever going to get a payoff, it would be from the payoff of not getting in. And that's what happened. And once it all sort of went down and, and you essentially, I guess, went back to sort of essentially, quote unquote, just being an owner and operator for uh, the now Hartford named franchise for having it been uh, New England or ha- had the name Hartford already occurred in WHA lane. I think maybe it did for a year or two. You no. kept New England for a while. No, we just did the not. first year. No, when the minute we got into the and we did the merger, the corporate partners said, okay, now we're we put up a whole ton more money and we want to really brand this team as a Hartford team. Yep. And they were 100% correct. And that's what we did. And if you look at the logo, the logo says it all. No, well, it still says it all, right? It's it, as, yeah. you, as you well know, and probably more than anybody, right? It is, uh, it is, it, it outsells some of the uh, lesser current teams in the NHL. That logo, to the extent that the Hurricanes will allow it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, since, since we mentioned the Hurricanes, let's bring this that topic up because it's sore, depending on who you're asking. You know, from Hartford days or even Carolina days and stuff. How do you feel about their? Um, on again, off again, and look, I guess again, on again, uh, embrace of the Hartford Whalers franchise logo and, and all. There's one reason why they do it, Tim. One, money. Cashola, they, yeah. Sure, they woke up to the fact, hey, maybe that logo's pretty good. Maybe we have some rights to it. That's between them and the NHL. But other than that, you know, look, it's it's not up to me. Um and it's up to, you know, the league itself and, and Carolina. And they've decided to embrace Hartford finally. Um, I don't think they even know I exist and I could care less. Um, my days ended when they ended. I still love Hartford and I love the marketplace. 
and I love each and every person that we worked with and played for us. Once it left, it went, it, that was that. But the, okay, so so that's a very politically correct and polite answer, right? But I mean, <laughs> still, right? I mean, you know, you, your blood, your guts, your 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 spirit, your your entrepreneurialism, all of it, right, predates all of the, uh, yeah, I don't know, and, and and frankly, a whole generation, maybe even two of Connecticut well, hockey fans that grew up watching Whalers games or at least heard stories about them afterwards. You, you're completely right. But I feel they've been very convenient the way they've been. Everything has a birth. And the birth of Carolina was not in Carolina. The birth of Carolina was in Boston and then went to Hartford where it had a wonderful life until it moved to Carolina. Well, the history from 1999 past doesn't exist to those guys. So um, the only history that matters to them is the Carolina forward. And I do think that's too bad, but that's, that's not my decision. I wouldn't do it that way, but it's up to them. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are some apologists there that kind of look at it and say, well, you know, at least they're embracing and they wear the colors once a game or two during a season and, and all that stuff. But, you know, frankly, from a more cynical and, and frankly, I think more honest and straightforward approach, right? It's an appropriation and it's convenient, it seems, right? Because of what you mentioned before, the cash involved. And and it just, you know, I, while that's not bad, I mean, there are others who say, you know, at least the history is being remembered, right? Which is not the case in a lot of other team situations. We'll get to one in a minute, um, not only in hockey, but elsewhere, right? And it's kind of a weird reason why we kind of keep chipping away at this for this silly little podcast, but, um, but it's part of history, right? And you hate to see it whitewashed or worse forgotten. And I, I guess it's better than no memories whatsoever, but you know, the cynicism creeps in though, as to the reasons why. And I think that maybe injures people's feelings, especially those I, who are involved. I would agree with you. Uh, I'm happy that they are now starting to acknowledge it because it never should be forgotten. And I hope maybe one day they'll, They'll play some exhibition games up in Hartford and maybe even a regular season game or two. And I know that's a lot harder in today's economics, but, but, um, you know, there's a great history there and they, I, I like, I, I just hope they'll embrace it more, not less. What's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, that's, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
And now, back to our conversation. All right, before, we'll get back to the NHL and hockey in a minute. But around this time, I can't ignore this. And this is, to me, is, is one of those things that I really wanted to get to with you today. Uh, is that World Football League, uh, shall we call it a dalliance? Because you were in the mix in the mix in the beginning, it seems, from what I understand, but ultimately didn't pull the trigger on the WFL. Do you want to kind of give us some, sure. some storyline about what I'll could have you, been the Boston franchise in the WFL? I'll tell you exactly what went on. Uh, Gary formed the league and he gave me an opportunity to get in it. And I took it. This was now the second year of the Whalers. And I knew I was moving the team to Hartford. Um, and here I am starting a team in Boston. And I was in way over my head. I said, look, you know, at this point, I'm like 31, I guess, 30. There's no way I could do both and be fair to the Hartford situation, which was my love and commitment. So I quickly realized, you know, Howard, you are in over your head. <clears throat> be proactive and get out. I had actually hired a coach, a really great old NFL legend, Babe Perilli, and I hired the first general manager ever, first female general manager ever in pro sports in Dusty Rhodes. Uh, and, and, and so when I realized, uh-uh, I went to Bob Schmertz, who was my partner in the Whalers, and he had a team in New York, and he needed a front office. He was sort of floundering, and I said, Bob, why don't you take my front office, and Gary will sell Boston team to somebody else and then you have my you have a semblance of a staff here and I'll try to help you but I got to focus on doing the right thing for Hartford and that's exactly what happened did you have any qualms about the, the WFL or, or or its its premise relative say to the for what you experienced with the WHA or 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 saw through Dennis and 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 Gary from their initial success with the with the ABA, or or was it just literally just kind of refocusing your efforts? Because the yeah, NFL is a different ball of wax, right? To go yeah, after. but I never thought of that. I I thought that Gary could make it work. Dennis wasn't involved in the WFL, um, but Gary it was Gary's show, and there were some good owners. His his initial group of owners were really good, and you figured, okay, Nicoletti, Bob Schmertz, John Bassett, you know. This fellow in Chicago, I didn't know who he was, but they seemed to have the um, a good a good base of ownership. And it seemed to me they had a good chance. And, and I really, I can tell you, I knew little nothing about the football world. Well, it also marketing and sales and all that, which is carries over to all sports. But I didn't know anything about football, and I never particularly enjoyed it the way I enjoyed hockey. You know. Yeah, well, that, that matters, right, for sure, because yeah. you know, if it doesn't yeah. align with your passions and, 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 frankly, you know what you had to do to kind of go that extra mile, right? I'm sure there were plenty of times, plenty of moments, plenty of late nights and, and uh, waking up in middle of nights, uh, you know, being an owner in the WHA and a franchise and the future and all that kind of stuff, let alone having to do it for another league and another team. But, you know, it also, though, I mean, you rewind it in the time and this article certainly pulled it out and and all of our explorations of the WFL, right? I mean, there's certainly no bigger target at that time, of course, than, than the NFL, especially with what happened with the ABA and the WHA going after the man, if you will, in each of those sports, right? It only seemed logical that the NFL should be next and maybe the biggest prize, but of course it didn't really pan out that way. Didn't quite pan out. 
Um, did you, I mean, I, that said, one, one last sort of question around that. I mean, you obviously sure. must have been aware enough of it. I mean, did you see the, let's call it the disaster that was coming for that thing? Or did you, were you just not? Well, here, here, yeah, sorry, Tim. Here, here, here's why I did, because I said to Bob Schmertz, look, I'll help you in the New York stars. You know, I'll help with the front office. You know, I'll come down. It, it was so easy to go to New York a day or day and a half a week, in which I did. And he quickly, Bob started to have financial issues, okay? And so Bob said, Howard, one, once the, it turned, and the, what turned the WFL, they started out like a house of fire. But then the franchise Philly had a crowd of 60,000, and somebody admitted that 55,000 were giveaways, okay? So that eroded immediately the credibility of the league. And it never took in New York. Um, they were playing at the New York Stars are playing at a place called, I think it was Roosevelt Field. Which Down, is, Downing Stadium on uh, on uh, Randall's Island. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Randall's actually, Island. Before you go further on that, I mean, I, maybe you have some inside knowledge. We literally just did an episode last week about, uh, or this week actually, as we're recording this, uh, Shea Stadium. Was Shea or any, or well, Yankee Stadium was kind of going offline at that point. Was Shea or any other facility that you were aware of uh, in the mix? It had to be. Because that was always everybody's third choice. The Cosmos obviously had to play there too. Nobody wanted the, the team. I mean, Bob, I know he tried, but he just felt the only place they could play was Randall's Island. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so, so, you know, he played, he started playing there and it wasn't drawing well. And he said to me, Howard, you got to get, help me get out of this, you know? And there was a, Guy, you may have heard of him, a famous Broadway producer named David Merrick. You ever heard of that name? My goodness. And he, and he produced, you look him up after Hello, Dolly. He was a famous sure. guy. Of course. So legendary, yeah. of course. Yeah. So <clears throat> I got along great with the guy. He, he's right. He loved football. And there's that famous restaurant, whatever the heck it is, Sardi's or one of those in the theater row in New York City. And once a week, I'd have lunch with him you know, to get him to try to make an offer to Schmertz. And so he said, Howard, you know, I'm going to make an offer to him. And he, and he did, he offered him 4 million bucks, but he insisted on all the money going into the team. So he said, I'll commit to putting up 4 million and I'll give Bob some kind of a carried interest, but you know, the money's got to stay in the team. This is not going to be easy to run. I thought it was one hell of a deal. It got Bob completely off the hook. I went to Bob with it, and Bob said, no, no, that's not fair. I want half the money to go into my pocket. So, of course, I had to tell David Merrick, here's the deal. He, went, he just looked at me, and he said, you tell him, blankety, blank, blank, blank. I said, okay. <laughs> Did you repeat it word for word? Yeah. <laughs> and so within three weeks, Bob said to me, see if you can get David Merrick back at the table. And I said, geez. You know, Bob, I'm, I haven't done a lot of this. I'll try, but it's, I think he's pretty committed not to be committed. <laughs> and I remember calling David up. He had a secretary, I think, had been with him for 100 years. And, and she said, oh, David always loves his lunches with you, Howard, but don't even bring up the name of the New York stars. <laughs> he doesn't even want to hear the name. So that ended that. And we ended up, actually, I got, I got him. Upton Bell 
great guy, the son of Bert Bell. You saw him in the article to this day. He's yes, we had it. We had him on uh, yeah. uh, a couple of years ago as well. Fantastic stories great. about that and the whole Charlotte thing. He's, just fascinating. Yeah, he's a fun guy. He's just a great guy. Great guy. Well, so, okay, but uh, last part on the WFL then. So uh, you obviously had a relationship and still to this day, I guess, still do with Gary Davidson, a white whale. If there ever was one, we want to get wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, But um, were you helping him at all in in any of this? Was he reaching out for your help, perhaps behind the scenes for the league too? I really, once, once he did the WFL, once, once I dropped out, um, Gary and I really lost touch until about five years ago. And um, he did whatever he was doing, and I did whatever I was doing. And then we reconnected five years ago, and we've just been, we've had a wonderful time together and see each other every six weeks for lunch or dinner. And, um, and he looks good and it's good, good recall. And we have a lot of fun talking about kind of crazy things you and I are talking about. Crazy for sure. Did you ever think that Boston could have been, I mean, obviously you weren't involved, but uh, that could have been a a decent WFL challenger football market uh, if you were able to have found an owner who maybe wanted to take a crack at that market? Or do you think it would have been just as difficult as, say, New York was or some of the other markets? Uh, Yeah, I think the WFL was, was, um, you know, it was the only thing I could say is probably too close to the heels of the AFL. You know, you just had, we think there was a long gap of time between the merger of the AFL and the WFL, but it, it wasn't. So I just think it was um, ill-conceived um, plan. That's all. That's a very good point. I, I, I guess I was, I was groping there for Boston and it all always having been, not unlike New York in certain cases, in certain times of history, a challenging market for facilities. You know, like for for stadia and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, you're you're 100% right on that. Look, all of New England, you know, there's one real major league arena right now in all of New England, the Boston Garden. Uh, Hartford, the building is really old. You You could argue that it could be bought up to snuff, but it would be mighty hard, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Because New England's a pretty big territory. Well, and you contrast that to the New York metropolitan area, obviously larger, but still, I think we're going on now our sixth or seventh major indoor arena. And I, it depends on whether you look at the old IZOD Center, you know, which is still there, but, you know, kind of mothballed. But I mean, you know, the the, the new the new uh, arena for built uh, purposely for the Islanders, I think, you know, I, if, I, if I'm on the concert business or if I, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of space and a lot of dates that have to get filled now with all those arenas well, there, right? Stop and think about it. There are three NHL teams within 7.5 miles of each other. You know, that's pretty amazing. For sure. Um, all right. So let's go back to hockey then, since you brought it up. Um, I, I, I want to get into the the intrigue around, I guess there's really no other way to put it. And, and you, the, all roads lead to you. So this is why I bring it up. So, in no particular order, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Minnesota North Stars, and the San Jose Sharks. And frankly, you know, to the to the astute historian or or just even the passing fan, I think of hockey, who was aware of any of those teams. Right, obviously, two of them still around. Um, I'm not sure it's obvious that this somewhat complicated relationship among the three exists, and without each of them, 
we wouldn't have the Sharks in San Jose and maybe even the Pittsburgh Penguins today. Is that a fair statement? You know, it actually is, and not many people quite clue into that, and good for you. Um, but there's Where, where do lot... I cash my check? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the, the fact is, um, when we left the Whalers, and we had no choice, the corporate community made the decision to sell it, which was their right, and our piece of the ownership as the founders was small, and the people that bought it were individuals and they wanted to run it themselves. They didn't want me. So, um, you know, there's no other team in Hartford. <laughs> so, and we had started in the film business and my wife uh, was acting. And so we elected to pull up stakes, go to LA, which we did. And we quickly got up quickly within about four months, got a call from John Ziegler and said, we're going to expand and we want to establish a benchmark fee of 50 million. And we know you love the sport, so maybe you can find a place. And so we did, we went up and down the coast, San Diego, we went to Sacramento, we went to San Fran. We never really even thought of San Jose until we got a call from a young lawyer there, Jim Hager, said, look, I've read in the papers, you're looking for a place for an NHL team, you have to come to San Jose. And so we did. We flew in there, met with the mayor, Tom McHenry, met with Jim, and, and saw the building that was not complete, but just about, and just said, this place is another Hartford with bigger and, and more money. I mean, and so we jumped at it. It's probably the only deal that I'm ever, that I'm sad about that we weren't able to do. I mean, we did it, but we couldn't keep it. Uh, we... We put the deal together and then Gordy and George Gunn, who owned Minnesota, were failing in Minnesota. And they said, well, we're in the league. Howard isn't. We want San Jose. And so one thing led to another. And we swapped Minnesota for San Jose. But legally and technically, we, we, we're the first owners of San Jose when we, we actually, Karen and I, my wife Karen and I joke about it, but we went to Chicago for the closing and we went all the way down one end of the conference room table and we signed as owners of the San Jose Shark. And now if I had had a heart attack at that end of the table, they'd have had a hell of a mess on their hand, but I didn't. And then we went down the other end of the table and signed it over to the guns and we ended up with Minnesota. Um, but, and Minnesota is a great place. So I, I really want to be clear on that, but it's not where, where we really want it to be. And, and um, you know, it didn't fit in with our film business and what Karen was doing. So we left and came back to L.A. And how did the, how did the Penguins figure into all of this? Because your ownership was uh, pronounced there, too. What happened there was... Um, Again, within about four or five months, I got a call from a chap named Tony Liberati, who had heard that we had done a deal or two. And he said, I'd like to meet with you um, and see if you might help me on a very confidential basis um, find a buyer for the Penguins because the economy was turning a bit. And I guess Mr. DeBartolo Sr., who I dealt with, had to sell the team. And so he flew out. We met at the airport for an hour, shook hands on a deal. And then trying to help him get a buyer, the 
the couple of people that we were talking to, you know, really we're, we're not being fair to him in the price. And so the suggestion was made, maybe you try to put the deal together. And so that's what we did. We put the deal together. He, it, it might have moved is what I, I can tell. I can't tell you it would have moved, but it was at the risk of moving because it couldn't get a buyer. And we but pulled the, but the market, though. I mean, the fans, I mean, it's a pretty darn good market. No, it's an outstanding market, you know, and it's an outstanding market. Um, but up until that point in time, it was an up and down market. Do you know what I mean, Tim? It, it, it had, you know, years and moments of very bad attendance. And a lot of times markets are good markets are made bad by the ownership. Now, I'm not going to judge any other ownership, but, you know, with good ownership, and we left in the end of the 90s, um, um, Mario and Ron Burkle took it over, and that's your definition of really good ownership because you have Ron Burkle, who has mighty deep pockets and is a good man, and Mario, who's an iconic figure in the marketplace. So between the two of them, they could do what we couldn't do. Tell me about uh, during your years in Pittsburgh, um... Uh, and this is a real, uh, this is a real deep dive. But the the Red Army team, um, I, I, maybe for our audience, if you can remind them what the CSKA Moscow, i.e., Red Army team was about. And do I have this right that there was kind of a, a joint venture between maybe the Penguins or, or maybe you separately as the owner or the overseer of the Penguins and this Red Army team? Or, or explain it to me because it was clear that that. The, the the Soviet versus America, the Soviet versus Canada thing, the, the summit series of 72, certainly in 74, there was a lot of that going on in, in the 70s. And I get the sense that that was part of the marketing allure of maybe doing something like this. What happened in the mid-90s, early 90s, um, as we all know from history, is that Russia became more capitalist in nature. And so, and the walls were down, so players could come and go, they could leave. And so the Red Army team always had the edge. A lot of people don't realize, A, they were probably, if not the greatest team, one of the top two, three greatest teams for years in all of hockey, not just Russia. But when you had free enterprise, they no longer had the leverage of if they saw a player like you or me or whoever that was a great young player, you were 2,000 miles away someplace. If they wanted you on your team, they drafted you in the army. So you had no choice. So they had the pick of the litter. But when the walls came tumbling down and, and it became an open, you know, open market, they lost their leverage and they needed partners. And they reached out to us, I guess, because they knew I kind of, we, we kind of liked adventure, you know? And so they reached out to us through an intermediary and we did a 50, 50 deal with the minister of defense there. We still have it actually, not that we can do anything with it. And so we went and, in and there. I'm sorry, where, where was the money going? I'm sure it wasn't <laughs> going to the back to the office uh, maybe. Right. No, no, no. I mean, what we put, we actually put people over there to run it. They had no attendance. They could have cared less about attendance. But once it became 
free trade and you had to have revenues, then it became more important. So we put a couple of, they did a documentary on it. You really ought to watch it called Red yeah, Penguins. Red Penguins. I absolutely would love to talk to the, the people who put that together. Yeah. As well. yeah. And, 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 and they did it. It's not our film, but they did a marvelous job and we we're in it. And we, we really made it work good for two years. Um, Doing, doing then, what? Bring it, it, it tours a la Harlem Globetrotters, that kind of thing? We, we did a tour one season, but we really marketed the team the way you market over here. And you get sponsors. And remember, sponsors were lining up to try to come into Moscow then and Russia because it was an open territory and it hadn't been open for years. We were, we were well ahead of our time in this deal, but we were probably too far ahead of our time. And and it, and then it got it it got dangerous. There's no other way to put it. And uh, and so we, for a few reasons, we made the decision to pull out. So and, in essence, in essence, you were you were running a team that obviously, well, I, I guess the KHL hadn't been formed yet. It was another decade or so later. But whatever the 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 leagues or league was in in Russia, obviously itself going through convulsions as a country and whatnot, but do you were essentially, yeah, I think what you're alluding to is almost like the soccer model that's evolving today where you, you have a central organization that's running clubs in different leagues around the world. And, and that, that indeed is ahead of its time and probably is going to come to hockey at some point too, if not uh, following the footsteps of, of professional international soccer. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the team then played other Russian teams. I mean, the, there was a Dynamo team, which is actually the KGB team. There's a team in St. Petersburg. Um, there were there are a lot of teams over there, all over the country. And they love the sport. They love the sport, and they're great players. And people there, I mean, it's tough what those people there are going through now, but it's not them. It's the leadership that's doing this. Um, but we, we looked upon the experience as a good one, but when it became unsafe, that's when we – pulled the staff out of there. We said, okay, that's that. Uh, and, and was that when you were, you were your ownership of the, Pe the Penguins or was that separate and different? No, no, it was, it was me and Morris Bellsberg and um, Tom Ruda, three of us. Uh, but this end. was not at the same time you were, you were the owners of the, of the, you were running the Penguins. Oh owners. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So the, the question right. then is how does, how does the NHL handle that? Do they, encourage that do they like that do they not like that did the deal just because gary was coming in the league in fact there's a great picture right in the wall of this living room of gary and victor tikhanoff and Gushin and jeff pash gary bettman and myself and my wife just when we had the initial press conference i think they, they had no objections to it and and actually after the first year when we were doing well a couple of the other owners George Gund and I think Mike Illich started to say maybe we'll do the same thing, but but then they changed their tune, you know. Uh, this is all fascinating, but but you're I mean clearly I you can keep coming at you're you're a, almost you're a hockey guy at heart it seems right I, either with your head and your heart right um, and I, oh, I guess yeah. you yeah so I mean did did you ever in your years and obviously the your entertainment business as well of course but. Did you ever entertain, aside from that WFL ideation, any other sports that you felt you could leverage, or was hockey really it and that was your lane? 
but I knew the hockey and I still love the people in it, though. It's all different than when I was there, mind you, though, uh, uh, very close to Gary and Bill Daly and some of the people there. They're wonderful people running the league. They've done an amazing job. And I, but when I'm out of that game now, we're firmly ensconced in film and, and, and um, we're, you know, we loved it while we did it, but now we're in a different chapter, but we keep our little toe in the water over there. All right. So, so two questions then that, that maybe can sort of round our, our, our conversation this time. That's, sure. a hint, that's a hint that maybe I'll drag you into it some other time. Uh, but, Anytime. Uh, Anytime. Be careful what you ask for. Um but I, I mean, it's clear that you you have more than a toe dip in 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 hockey, at least over the last number of years. I, the first question is around what you think the future of the sport is. And let me sort of seed it with uh, what is now known as the Premier Hockey Federation, the former National Women's Hockey League. Right. I like a lot of sports on the pro level. Finally, and it, very interestingly, um, almost, you know, complete greenfield, it seems for. Uh, women at uh, a high level and a sustained level in professional sports, hockey being among them. And you were part of getting one of those franchises that still exists today in that league up and running. Well, we, I, I'm not sure about that. We, we never had a franchise in the, in the, I think the, you licensed the name though, right. Or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. We let the, we let the Connecticut girls use the name gladly. Um, but I'm all for it. I think it's just wonderful. Uh, when, when I had the Whalers, uh, my daughter was the only team on an all boys prep school team. She was the only girl who played left wing and she's pretty good. Um, so, so I just love the fact that she played and competed. And now, now if she were at the same place, she'd have a team of all girls. And I think it's great. And I watch, I enjoy watching the women's hockey and whenever it's on TV and, and I think they're they're great fun to watch. They do great. Yeah, and certainly the uh, the success on the uh, Olympics uh, level too certainly doesn't hurt. Um, but what do you think the future of the pro version of the sport is, female and male? I mean, I you know I we regularly take pot shots at the NHL for some of the franchises that uh, you know and some of the the, the doings and 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 you know. The, the Arizona Coyotes are probably, you know, uh, first among them, right? Given um, it just seems like uh, a, a strong desire by the commissioner to, you know, through hell or high water, keep a franchise in that market, despite all the, I don't know, seemingly insurmountable obstacles in terms of facility and whatnot against it. But uh, how, how strong do you feel hockey is right now? And, uh, you know, could you ever imagine it being what it is today? And, Perhaps is it getting too big and too corporate and too commercial and all of that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think it's getting too big or too commercial. I think it's, I think the way Gary and his administration have grown the sport is is fantastic. And you have to remember every any league, you got 32 teams in it. Look, you in the NFL, you had like four franchise, three franchise moves the last three years. You had San Diego go to LA, you had another team, Oakland, go to Vegas. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've heard maybe there'll be a, maybe a team will expand. They'll, they'll make moves in every league. It's just going to happen. Um, and they're as good as it sounds. And I agree. You look at Phoenix and they, you say, well, it's definitely had a, a rocky history, 
but it should work there. And I think if they can ever get the building situation the way they want to and a good competitive team, there's no reason why it shouldn't work there. There's a, there's a great saying I have. <laughs> you may not want to, you may edit me out, okay? <clears throat> but the saying is the grass is always greener until you smoke it. So you say, well, Phoenix ought to be in where? Kansas City. How the hell do you know that'll work? You don't. Yeah, or Houston or Quebec. Or or, Houston. You know. And, you know, you talk about Houston. Houston's got three other venues and three other teams. It's tough now because you want your own venue. So I don't know. I mean, it's 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 the NHL and Gary. And, and you also want to do everything you can for the fans that do support. You want to do everything you can to try to keep it there because that, that shows the other teams in the league that you remain loyal to the team and we'll remain loyal to you. And so it's a tough, tough situation. I think, I think the league from top to bottom is, is really solid in the NHL. And frankly, all four leagues right now are, are really solid and the values have gone up dramatically, dramatically. And that's healthy. Would you have envisioned the relatively quick success of both Las Vegas and Seattle that's occurred? Seattle, yes. Um, I, You know, it's a border. I call that a border city. They're up in the northwest corner. They're close to Vancouver. You know, there's a hockey heritage there from the old Pacific Coast League. So, yes. And and we were we thought Vegas would do well. I never knew they'd do this well. Never knew they'd do this well. Uh, but Seattle, yes, for sure. I guess the question that was in that question that that wasn't sort of obvious is, uh, and I, this is where the cynicism, for me at least, comes comes uh-huh. in. You're obviously more of the pro and and has has more the uh, the knowledge of of how things really work. Is uh, it's the eternal uh, and seemingly um, uh, growing tension uh, between governments and subsidies uh, for ever increasingly large and expensive. Uh, facilities. And you wonder when that sort of potentially cracks. And you see a couple of signs of sort of pushback from uh, governments and, and, and you know, uh, tax funded uh, whatever is to in- entice. Um, but I, I don't know. There's, there's a point at which you wonder how many of these uh, uh, palaces, indoor and outdoor, um, can continue without sort of something I don't know, going awry because um, there certainly has been a big boom in in construction. But I, I think there's it seems to be an increasing concern in certain communities about how much they're willing to fund uh, these essentially private entities. I guess there is, but I can tell you, ask Hartford how they feel about losing the team and and the damage losing that team has done to that city and that area. And they would have had that team today if they didn't get stubborn over, look at three or $4 million a year is a ton of money for you and me. But in the overall scheme of things, to be able to say you still had your major league team and the economic impact a team has on a city and a region is dramatic. It really is dramatic. And when people do their homework, and we've done it, and I haven't done it, Tim, because I haven't had to do it in about 25 years, okay? But when you do it, you'll Just throw three zeros on, on every number that you're looking at then. It, when you realize the value 
that a team brings to a marketplace, it's immense. And, and that's in dollars and cents. And then you have the spiritual value. I mean, I remember my corporate partners and we would talk about how great it was for them to look at the newspaper and look at the NHL standings and be able to see Hartford there. And for the people in the area and the region, and as an enticement to get young executives to come and work in the, in the marketplace. So when, when people get a little upset with government for doing everything they can to keep a team there, really scratch below the surface and see what is the value of a team because it's immense. And you don't, if you're gonna lose it, boy, you better really think through all the ramifications of losing it, making sure it isn't a stubborn owner or a stubborn governor, which is exactly what happened in Hartford. Yeah, it's that halo of quote unquote major league status, right? We've seen it from the earliest days of, of expansion in baseball, right? It's, it's, it's a Minnesota getting a franchise from, from Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, that it's it connotes major league status, literally and figuratively. And um, yeah, but the, the price to pay, right? And, um, you know, I think it's a, it's just very interesting. Maybe it's just it's more coverage. Maybe it becomes the dollars just to get so, so, so much larger. I, I do think there's a real... You also have to look at the economics of it too, and and obviously we're in inflationary time, so maybe not the the best example of it. But you know, um, the cost of going to a game, right, is is already far out outpacing the average person's ability to to go to a game, whether it's an NHL game or NFL game, or whatever, to go to these palaces. And yet they're also paying the taxes uh, for these facilities that uh, you know maybe they can't afford to go to, which doesn't seem well, to sort of sit square with a lot of people, but you know, I and, hear that argument. And, and I hear that and I get that. And if the cost gets unbearable, it'll show in the attendance. And then that'll get people to say, maybe we got to do things a little differently here, folks. Um, but right now that hasn't happened. Right now you go to these games there. I, I go to it. I don't go to many anymore because we, we're out in Palm Springs here, but I'll go a couple of times. My wife and I will go to, like the Kings game and see old friends. And I look around that arena and I see the price of tickets. Everybody's got a Jersey and a hat. And I say, how do they, and most of them are really young. I say, how the heck do they afford it? And, and at some point when it starts to price itself out, then the market is going to have to adjust. Yeah. I mean, can you ever have imagined back when you were, you know, fledgling in the, in the WHA and, and, just the power and the lucrative nature of things like season tickets or uh, logos or uh, merch, right? Um, you know, yeah. obviously it was part of the mix, right? But I mean, it's it's fanatics, right? The company that's behind all the merchandise for all these leagues now, right? It's this multi-billion-dollar valuation company, and it's for merch, right? And t-shirt, and by the way, expensive merch. Um, no question. Yeah, I mean those aren't those aren't little simple promotional items anymore. They're they're big business, arguably keeping you know as a huge revenue stream as part of the overall mixture. Real estate, right? Owning your not only your, your own arena, but like if you look at baseball and um, and and even MLS soccer and, and some of these others, you know, it's all about like the the uh, the acreage around the uh, the facility so that they can somewhat diversify with some mixed use stuff. So that in the off season, there are revenue streams, real estate wise versus just the attendance of the games. Interesting yeah. stuff. I mean, it's good, fun stuff. You're 100 percent right. All right. So here's the last question, then. So in your not so new life in, in, in the world of entertainment and films and all that kind of stuff, 
Uh, are there, I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the documentary about the uh, Red Army team, Red Penguins. Um, I know you were you were part you weren't you were interviewed for, but you were uh, producing that. Do you sense, do you feel that there are any stories from your um, your past sports executive life, shall we say, that um, either you or others uh, should bring to life? It's a loaded question. I, I've got a couple of suggestions and or do you even fancy uh, getting involved in telling some of those stories, which I'm sure are we're, crazy. It, yeah, we're, we're right now, we have two shows we're doing. Um, one is the birth of the Whalers and the WHA is a limited series. Really? Doing, yeah. And, and if we're you breaking hear, news here on this show. Unbelievable. Well, if you go to the Hockey News, we, we're working with the Hockey News on a few things. But if you go, you can hear the podcast. It's called Slim and None. And you can get the, the episodes. We're up to about, I think tomorrow, the seventh one comes out. And then we'll do a limited series on that. And then the other one we're doing is on the Red Penguins. We've obviously had to slow it down because of what's going on in Russia. But we will tell that story as well. And so those are audio and podcast only, not uh, video or uh, no, no, the, the Red Penguins, we haven't, we're just developing it. The Slim and None, the one on the birth of the Whalers and WHA's podcast right now, but it's going to be limited series. Right now, it's a podcast. Fantastic, and and um, and as you're thinking about those ideas, I mean, any others you you're you're ideating, but maybe you haven't put pen to paper yet. We're we're doing we're doing a uh, urban mighty ducks. We're very close to having it financed. That'll be a movie, and we're just putting that together now. We hope to shoot that movie in the fall, and it's it's really an urban mighty ducks. It's great fun really great fun very interesting and then i guess the um uh i guess the sort of the more uh creative question is what do you and your wife and, and others involved in in your efforts whether it's around sports stuff or not i mean are you more intrigued by and or um jazzed by uh non documentary style storytelling or would you do you rather enjoy having the uh, creative liberties of doing more so fictional or fiction adjacent adjacent storytelling. Oh, we've done both. Um, we haven't done documentary, uh, but we've done we've done IP that is like well, we did the movie Ray, and that was based on Ray Charles. Absolutely, obviously, uh, we've done a mo- we've done movies that are based on books, and then we've done pure fiction. Um, the, the stories we gravitate to are stories that are the triumph of the human spirit. That's what we like the most. Stories that are triumph of the human spirit. I think we need more, and we, we've kind of done a little bit of everything, but I think in, particularly in today's world, you need feel-good stories that make you feel good. So we try to do that. They're a little harder to do. <laughs> That's what we strive for. And do you miss anything from your sports life at all? Or are you just happy to have been there at the, at the founding of some of these things versus what it is today? I, I listen, I miss a lot, you know, they're wonderful people. Um, just, so I have nothing but fond memories. When you get to the playoffs, my competitive juices kick in and I say, God, it'd be kind of fun to have a team that's going to go in and hopefully kick the ass of another team. But beyond that, I don't miss it. I don't. I couldn't possibly run a team in today's world. 
It's it's uh, complicated, a much bigger business. And I'm way better served watching the games with my wife, Karen, and enjoying them. It does sound like it might have been a lot more fun back in the day, though. Back in the day, I can assure you. <clears throat> One day we'll do a show, maybe a little off color, but you'll you'll have a few laughs. I love that conversation. I could have had at least another hour or two, and uh, I uh, suspect you agree. And uh, we look forward to having Howard back to go into further uh, minutia and uh, nooks and crannies of his still unfolding story. Uh, and uh, lots, uh, lots of great inventive stuff uh, in the hopper uh, from Baldwin Entertainment uh, with Howard and his wife, but also... Uh, in the realm of sports, uh, as uh, now out there in the ether too. So, for example, you must get the book. That's called Slim and None, My Wild Ride from the WHA to the NHL and all the way to Hollywood. Um, that is available wherever good books are found, uh, and you will find a convenient link to it, of course, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 259. My goodness. And uh, you will uh, give us some referral love when you buy uh, one or many copies of said book. It's a wonderful read. It's fun. It's got lots of great anecdotes. Um, if you're too busy to read uh, or just frankly too lazy to, or you'd like a, co- a uh, complimentary, complimentary, a compliment, that's the word I'm looking for, to that book. Uh, how about the podcast that's out now? I think it's up to episode number seven. So it's uh, drizzling out every couple of weeks. It's called Slim and None. Now, you can find that podcast wherever uh, fine podcasts are found, wherever you get this one, for example. Just search up Slim and None. And uh, episode, it's great. It's uh, Howard's uh, direct uh, reminiscences of stuff. And uh, it's a seven episodes deep thus far. And uh, it's great. Uh, you, if you love this conversation and our episode number 100 conversation, our first one with Howard, you will love that podcast as well. How about the movie that Howard features prominently in? about that story about the Red Army hockey team called Red Penguins. It came out in 2020. Uh, We'll have a convenient link to that too, but you can see that on Amazon Prime. You can buy the uh, DVD. Uh, We'll have links to all that stuff wherever good films are found. But uh, if you want to stream it, uh, it is rentable on Prime Video. And again, we'll have that link for you on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That is a hoot and then some. And again, it's called Red Penguins. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how much more I can promote for for uh, Howard, but uh, there's plenty more stuff I'm sure to come, and I'm sure I've missed. Uh, but um, I do appreciate uh, you uh, listening this far, and uh, and let's see what else. How about you want to follow us? By all means, we're on, uh, of course, our website again, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's sort of the locus for everything. All of our uh, episodes and stuff are found there. You can share them and stream them there. Of course, the best way to make sure that you get every single episode and when it's uh, seconds after it's uh, dropped out there in uh, podcast land is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you find us and put us in there so you don't miss a single episode. Um, Our website uh, obviously is... uh, Got lots of great imagery and all that uh, other kinds of stuff, links to all of our books and various media and stuff. Uh, you can follow us on uh, any uh, of the major social platforms, probably most aggressively on Twitter. 
as long as, uh, well, un- until maybe Elon-, Elon Musk takes it over. We'll see. But at Good Seats Still, that's where you'll find us on Twitter. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will find us on Facebook as well at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, email, feel free to send us some email. Go ahead. We're at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Pretty simple. And yes, we have a little weekly email newsletter. Just find the link on the, on the website there and you can subscribe to that too. Uh, and what else? Our pal Jerry Payne. Thank you, sir, for your uh, knob twiddling this week, as always. And um, I don't know. I guess that's it. Let's see you next week, okay, with more fun and frivolity coming up. Uh, take care. And until then, next week, we will see you. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.